On this week's Texas Tribune TribCast, how media outlets were tricked into quoting a Santa Fe shooting survivor who was never there, why Texas teachers are worried about their pay raises, and who will be the last Texan running for president. But before all that, I'd like to thank today's TribCast sponsors. UT Southwestern is number one in the world for research impact in the healthcare category, according to Nature Index. More at utsouthwestern.edu. And the Texas Association of Nurse Anesthetists works to advance patient safety and the profession of nurse anesthesia. Learn more at CRNAs. Learn more about CRNAs at www.txana.org. Hello, this is Amon Bethija here on Wednesday, July 3rd with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Who is not an anesthetist. <laughs> <laughs> so hard to say. Working on that. Put the little pronunciation in there. Uh, education reporter Elias Swaby. Hello, also not an anesthetist. <laughs> <laughs> and political reporter Alex Samuels. I don't know how to say it, but hello, everyone. <laughs> one, one out of four people is honest about this. Okay. As always, we are taking up your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can chime in with the hashtag TripCast. Uh, Alex, we're going to start with you because you had a hell of a scoop this week uh, about a man named David Briscoe. Maybe. <laughs> Allegedly, yeah. Uh, just first off, tell us how you came into contact with this guy. Right. So he actually made contact with us first. Um, in about mid-April, I was kind of, you know, to be honest, dragging my feet on doing an anniversary story. We were in the middle of session and he reached out to me and was like, hey, you know, I'm sure you've seen the reports of survivors at uh, the Parkland shooting committing suicide. And I think it would be great to do a story just from the perspective of a survivor talking about our mental health and kind of what happens to us in the years after a shooting. Uh, I was you're like, talking about um, anniversary of Santa Fe. Sorry. Yeah. Anniversary of Santa Fe. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, you know, sure, we can do a phone call. And so we talked on the phone for like 30 minutes. It was, you know, honestly a pretty compelling conversation. And, um, you know, we fell off after that. I tried to fact check some of the things that he told me. And then he claimed he had never talked to me and kind of led us to the story that we published earlier this week. And so what you found was that this guy... Not the, the the Santa Fe School District told you that he had never worked there, mm-hmm. but he had told uh, a bunch of news outlets, Time, The Statesman, Wall Street Journal, that he was a substitute teacher there and had heard the shooting happen and had barricaded the doors and mm-hmm. protected his kids. Um, what happened when you called the news outlets about this? Um, so those are like always hard calls to make, but um, the only person who actually you know picked up the phone was the statesman reporter, and then everyone else I contacted through email. So I don't actually know their actual like reaction when mm-hmm. it happened. Um, but they were like, you know, we'll get back to you. We're gonna obviously look into this ourselves before we remove him from our stories. And then within 24 hours, they had all, you know, eliminated any mention of a David Briscoe from their stories and. They had an editor's note at the top just saying, you know, the district confirmed this guy never worked there. We've removed him from our stories. And that was that. It was all firsthand accounts of the shooting though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and, and one thing that I think it was um, uh, Maggie for the Statesman brought up the issue of in a shooting, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to go to the district and say, can you confirm this person worked there? Mm-hmm. Uh, just with everything going on, they've got enough to deal with. Uh, at the same time, I just kind of was stunned at that all these outlets just took this man at his word who I guess contacted them all through social media? 
So what was interesting in the statesman, uh, with the statesman reporter is that apparently this David D. Briscoe account was tweeting about the Santa Fe shooting back in May of last year. And that's what led the statesman reporter to reach out to him. Um, and then they started talking that way. I don't know how CNN, the Wall Street Journal, and Time got in contact with him or who initiated contact. They did not answer me on that question. Um, but those tweets about the shooting from that account has since been deleted. The David D. Briscoe account has since been deleted, and he's now using another Twitter handle. So he's still out there, um, whoever he is, but uh, no longer tweeting about so the shooting. So he deleted his account uh, before your story or after? After the story. Um, he deleted the David D. Briscoe account, and he's using another account that I won't say on podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess he got a lot of flack, uh, obviously, for what he did. How, um, do you have any sense of what was motivating him? Because it wasn't money as far as we could tell. Or, yeah, um, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, some of the things that he told me in our initial phone interview were oddly specific. Like he mentioned that he gave a speech at a high school in Florida and that he was honored by the principal and that he talked about what kind of protections he would want if he ever got back into teaching. And, you know, a phone call to the school, they'll be like, we don't know this man. He was <laughs> never here. Um, so I, I'm honestly unclear as to what he gained from it. Um, my best assumption is that he just wanted some sort of attention and, uh, you know, media attention for pretending to be a survivor. Yes. Um, what's been the reaction to the story beyond people angry at this guy? Um, it's been a pretty positive reaction. I think the main message here is that it's just kind of a, you know, sign to journalists to fact check everything and don't believe people uh, for their word. Um, just verify everything you can, especially in, ver in breaking news situations. It's been a pretty positive reaction so far. I'm I'm so curious. You know, unfortunately, at some point there's going to be another mass shooting, and I'm just curious. You know, if, if journalists in general are going to be more wary of, you know, people who claim to be witnesses, because you know, if say it's a school or what a business or wherever it is, they are going through so much that you know it it is hard to like contact them and say, can you confirm this person works for you? Mm -hmm. um, and so, are they just going to are they still going to have to trust these people, or are they going to not? quote them at all or, or what? I don't know. I think the easiest thing would have been to like go down there. Um, I know the Wall Street Journal story had a Santa Fe dateline. I don't know how they, if he was there, I don't know if they reached him through social media and just did some of their other reporting there, but no one else had a Santa Fe dateline because those stories were written within a day or even a week after the shooting. Um, so in a breaking news situation, I mean, the best thing to do obviously is be there, mm -hmm. but if you can't, I guess you just have to find a way to get around that, which is hard to do. And it's also hard, I feel like, when um, it's a substitute teacher who's not listed. You know, for a lot of full-time teachers, point. they're mm -hmm. on the website. That's how I fact check a lot of my stories. But if you have a substitute teacher, they're not necessarily going to be on that page. And so it's harder to do an in-the-moment in the fact check. I mean, mm -hmm. not that they shouldn't have, you know, everyone obviously should do as much as they can. But I think that definitely makes it mm -hmm. more plausible that this slipped through the cracks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's got me wondering. Now I'm just curious, like, I mean, you you kind of found this guy in part because he he backed out of, uh, like, he just stopped talking to you. Mm -hmm. And that kind of raised your alarm bells. Um, and it just makes me wonder, are there other ones like him and around other tragedies that just no one's bothered to check? Mm -hmm. And a point brought up by um, Flo Rice, who was a, you know, an actual substitute teacher who was there last year who actually was shot five times. She was like, who knows how many other tragedies this man going by other names might have just parachuted oh God, into. I of that. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, part of it for the, you know, the, for the journalism side is, you know, people will do this now. So, 
you know, build something around it. You know, if you're at the event and you see something and you, you know, you can tell someone is an eyewitness because they're right there in the middle of it, that's one thing. But if you're doing, if you're phoning it in, you know, which you have to do in some cases, um, you have to have in the back of your mind, oh yeah, remember that one guy and build around it and verify it, get a number, get it an address, find a way to double check it, you know, double check every fact. So on to um, um, a more uh, more pleasant story about <laughs> schools, uh, teachers getting raises. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely <Or not>. more <laughs> pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Leah, you had a story today about, um, you know, the session ended and there was all this touting of the money going to the school districts and how they're all going to be able to give uh, teachers raises. You're finding that the situation's a lot more complicated. Yeah, I think that... First of all, there's a lot of confusion around what actually happened this session. You know, the, the law that was passed is pretty complicated, especially when it comes to the mandated raises. And, you know, with the lieutenant governor starting off with the $5,000, that's an easy line to spread around. And then the, you know, 30% of all new revenue with 75% of that going to certain people and 25% going to certain people. That's not as... Not as catchy. Yeah, right. yeah. it really isn't. Really long bumper stickers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I think it's been harder for that to spread. And I think a lot of teachers um, don't necessarily understand what that means for them. A lot of superintendents and school boards that are actually creating the budgets um, have been confused about how to interpret it. Um, the state is trying to give guidance, um, but the the timeline for approving, finalizing budgets, um, one of them was June 30th, and then another one is coming up in um, the end of August, depending on the fiscal year of the school district. Um, and so it's just, they've they've had very little time to figure out what is actually a sustainable raise, given the fact that we don't actually know how much money we're going to be getting from, from the state um, and how much money we're going to be um, seeing that's, that's different from the, the previous year. One of the um, anecdotes in your story that jumped out at me was uh, Cypress Fairbanks ISD in the Houston area. They approved a budget millions of dollars in the red that included $25 million in raises for classroom teachers, librarians, counselors, and nurses, and... $11 million in raises for all other employees. That just stunned me that, you know, the state put all this money into schools and this district, which is a pretty big one, I think, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a large actually suburban. going into debt to basically keep up. Yeah, I think, I think you see a lot of school districts um, approving deficit budgets and then also approving more in raises than they're technically required to by the state and by the new law. Um, and part of that, is wanting to remain competitive. So if you approve a 3% raise and every other district approves an 8% raise, um, in future years, that's going to make it really difficult for you to be able to um, hire teachers and hire the staff that you need, especially with so many districts already experiencing um, teacher shortages. Um, so I think, you know, in the, the teachers that I've talked to, and a lot of them I talk to on background, um, they are definitely doing their research on what other school districts are offering, even if they haven't heard yet from their own school district. Um, and, you know, not necessarily because they're going to leave next year, but because they want to see, um, you know, with no across the board mandate, what should I be getting? What should my paycheck look like for the upcoming year so they can plan for their lives? Did you get a sense from talking to teachers or school administrators that um, 
some of them really wish that Dan Patrick's proposal of just the across the board $5,000 pay raise would have been what happened just for the, if for no other reason, just the simplicity of it. I, I think it's not necessarily the simplicity, but because the the actual raises that they're seeing are not five thousand dollars, right? So it's the money. I think it's for the money of it. <laughs> um, but are some of them giving more than five thousand? Uh, no, I, oh, okay. I think it's yeah. I think it's I, the ones that I've seen are around you know anywhere between a thousand to you know some of them are are around three thousand, maybe mm-hmm. four thousand dollars additionally. Um, but yeah, they're they're not really likely to get $5,000 unless they're, you know, the, the law also requires that teachers with more than five years of experience get more money out of um, any new any new revenue the school districts are seeing. Um, so those teachers are more likely to see, you know, closer to 5K if that's what the district decides. Um, but even then, I haven't really seen a lot of, uh, you know, there's 12 hundred <laughs> school districts, so I haven't looked at all of them, but yeah. I haven't seen a lot of them that are um, you know, going up to or mm. beyond 5000 When do the school districts get a hard idea or a solid idea of how much money they're getting from the state? So it's different um, this year because uh, they're going by current year values instead of prior year values. Right. This is, um, this is a question of which property value you use to base your budget. Right, exactly. And so I think that, and there's also the question of when do you figure out there's a new really complicated model on how to um, figure out uh, how many economically disadvantaged students you have. So it's no longer free and reduced lunch. Now it's based on um, census block. And that's something that they took from San Antonio ISD. And so they're still figuring that out. There's still a lot up in the air. They have preliminary uh, estimates coming from the state and coming from themselves on on what that could mean. But it's it's not clear with so many moving parts exactly when um, the final numbers will be ready. Wow, that's for, that must be so frustrating to the districts. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it's challenging for them, <laughs> especially because the law just passed, you know, in May and their, their first deadlines for, for these budgets are, um, now. <laughs> so, so we don't know how much money we're going to have. We do know that we have to give teachers a pay raise and we know that we're on deadline for writing this budget. Right. And I think there's a lot wow. of, uh, mistrust around whether, the money is actually going to stick um, beyond this year, beyond this biennium. Sure. I mean, I, I, you, what you heard a lot around the Capitol during session was that this is all due to an oil boom, or a lot of this is. Right. And so if, <clears throat> you know, in two years that's no longer the case, it's, you know, it's, good, it's kind of hard to imagine lawmakers sticking with this much spending. Right. I think it's a lot of the money that they've put in um, is sort of tied to uh, property tax decreases down the line. And so that probably means that, you know, if, unless there's something that increases the state's budget in the future, um, they're, they're not guaranteed another increase in, you know, the base funding per student. They're not guaranteed more money for teacher raises in the future. Um, and I think that's, that's the scary part. Wow. Uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TripCast sponsors. There's a reason lawyers refer tough cases to us. We fight industry giants on behalf of individuals daily. We're Waters and Krauss. More at waterskraus.com. And formed in 1877, the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association is the largest and oldest livestock organization based in Texas and represents more than 17,500 members. More at tscra.org. Last topic, I was hoping we could talk about um, the presidential race, which... uh, 
you know, for months, you know, the Tribune and other Texas outlets have been kind of covering O'Rourke and Castro as the Texas candidates. Right. We never really thought of them as like against <clears throat> each other, specifically as the Texas candidates. That all changed the, this the week. The Texas bracket, right? <laughs> yeah. Can well, you, Ross, can you talk a little about what how that happened? Well, it kind of changed because, um, you know, O'Rourke was getting most of the attention in Texas because he's the only candidate in the presidential race who's run statewide in Texas. As a, as a, you know, so he's got a statewide base. Uh, potentially is, you know, to the extent that there is a threat to the Republicans in Texas, O'Rourke is a pretty good representative of it, just based on his 2018 race against Ted Cruz. He finished, mm-hmm. you know, um, three less than three points behind mm-hmm. Um, so everybody looked at him at the very beginning of this race and said, you know, watch that horse. Um, Castro was a little bit different. He was nationally known in political circles. He was the former housing and urban development secretary in the, in the Obama administration, former mayor of San Antonio, but in terms of electoral politics, hasn't run outside of Bear County. So 253 counties to go. <laughs> so, so not really regarded as a, as a statewide candidate yet. And then... Uh, we've got this third candidate, and it's, um, you know, Marianne Williamson is mostly known as an author and kind of a spiritual guru, uh, has uh, moved around a lot in celebrity circles, Oprah and Gwyneth Paltrow and those kinds of things. And she turns out to be born and raised in Houston, a graduate of Bel Air High School, um, and then off to California. So technically three Texans in the race. I think what threw this into high relief really was Castro needing to get some traction and deciding that the best way to get some traction was up Beto O'Rourke's back. Um, and, and in the first debate, basically, you know, attacked him on his immigration position, attacked him in specific on a law asking O'Rourke why he didn't support a law that would make it a civil crime to cross the border instead of a criminal act. Um, that law, in Castro's estimation, is what's being used to separate families. And being against changing that law is being for separating families. He made a very pointed attack on it. Beto O'Rourke uh, fumbled the, um, his, his explanation, and um, you know, basically Castro won that round. And they came out, and one of the things Castro said afterwards was, you know, everybody's been talking about Beto O'Rourke is the Texan. I am the Texan. So now we've got a Texas bracket. I think, you know, just to wrap all of this, the Texas candidates, all three are second or third tier candidates in the presidential race right now at best. And unless they get something going on, um, they have a lot of candidates to zip past before anybody outside of Texas considers the Texans a real threat. Well, I will note that after last week's debate, there were some polls, there were lots of polls about, um, you know, how the candidates did. And on the first night, it, uh, Castro and Elizabeth Warren were widely seen as like the winners of that night. And um, the second night, uh, Kamala Harris was seen as the winner. Uh, and Washington Post is just out with a new poll this morning. And it's interesting, they, they asked everyone they polled uh, nationally, who, um, who would you pick? Who would you support president? And then they named all 22 candidates and those poor people taking that poll had to hear all 22 names and then said, who do you pick? Who's your first choice? Who's your second? Um, Castro uh, did... I think one percent or two percent. Uh, when he's when if he wasn't offered as a name, but after he was offered as a name, after they heard the n- name of candidates, he tied for fifth with uh, Pete Buttigieg, which is the highest he's never uh, at four percent. So you know, right. not exactly <clears throat> you know leading or anything, but not a juggernaut yet. But yeah, yeah. And uh, O'Rourke dropped to one percent 
or one or two percent, I forget. But either way, Castro is now ahead of him in one national poll, which has never happened until now. You know, we're really early in this. In our polling, we didn't ask for head-to-head races. We basically said, have you ever heard of these people? And listed all 23 names. And um, I think only 10 of them got more than 50% name recognition in Texas in our poll right after the legislative session. So um, first week of of June. Um, You know, it's going to be a while, and these guys are going to get known to voters one way or the other. And, you know, some of them are never going to get known. They're not going to have enough oxygen or money to continue, and then we'll be down to 15 candidates, and then it'll sort out. You know, people will get really interested in this one and stop looking around or shopping anymore, and everybody at the 1% or 4% level, if they persist at that level, is going to fall out of this thing. Alex, you were uh, at a Castro event on Friday, mm-hmm. and it was it was the one where he said, I am the Texan. Yeah. Uh, but it was a very strange one because uh, he, he was always supposed to be coming to Austin for that event, uh, for you know, well over a week, I think. Mm-hmm. And then at the last minute, Bitter O'Rourke announced he was also having an event in Austin at another bar like a mile away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what was it like at Castro's event? Um, you know, I'd only been to one Castro event prior, and it was in Dallas, and it was in this little uh, very small uh, mom-and-pop uh, like restaurant, um, pretty sparsely pop- populated. But um this event on Friday was pretty crowded. I was talking to a couple of folks um, with the party because the Castro event was hosted by the Texas Democratic Party. It wasn't a Castro event necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. And they said that because of his debate performance, they were expecting a much larger crowd than what they might have originally anticipated. And I talked to some folks in the crowd and I asked them, you know, why are you here? Why aren't you, you know, a mile up the street at Schultz Garden? And a lot of people, I mean, not a lot, the few that I talked to, they there was a kind of a sentiment that they were tired of Beto or they had heard the same speech before and they maybe hadn't paid attention to Castro before and they were ready to kind of give him a chance because of his kind of standout debate performance. And um, what about when he was speaking? Did he, other than saying, I'm the Texan, did he... Um... Everybody gasp? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there wasn't anything new in his speech. It was a meet and greet. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was people who hadn't paid attention to his um, platform Prior to Wednesday, they were now learning who he was and what he had to offer should he be, you know, elected um, or should he win that Democratic primary. Um, the I am the Texan, I think that was one of the last lines, if not the last line he said on stage. Um, and that was kind of a good closer before he went immediately to the press <laughs> to talk to us. <laughs> Um, as, as the Texan, what do you have to say to it? <laughs> you know, the, the, the first test of this is going to be when we see their financial reports. They had a finance, uh, a fundraising deadline on June 30th, uh, so Sunday midnight, and they have to report by July 15th, and we'll see if there was a bump here for anybody who performed well in the debates, whether, you know, how people did in the third quarter, whether Beto O'Rourke's tailed off, whether Castro's picked up, you know, all of those kinds of things. You know, we'll get a report card, but it really is very still, you know, still very early in this race. And, um, you know, these candidates are are still developing. Some of them um, have never been, you know, in a national campaign, much less a statewide one. There's a lot of, lot of road between here and there. Uh, I, f- I was talking with some people about this the other day, and the, the, the one sentiment I kind of heard from everyone was that Castro, you know, still not likely to be the nominee, but frankly, neither is O'Rourke. But Castro is in an excellent position if he doesn't mess up to be a running mate, and O'Rourke is not. Just 
for, for no, you know, he's kind of pissed off some people and um, he just doesn't seem to have, um, he doesn't seem to give a candidate, a, 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 you know, a, a, a lead candidate a lot of value in the same way that Castro could. If whoever the nominee is, if it's not a Texan, if they have the idea that one of the Texans can put Texas in play, then none of that will matter. Mm -hmm. if, they, if, they think, if they think that'll work, and if they don't think they'll put Texas in play, then they'll go to the regular concerns. You know, who's the best matchup against Pence? Who's the best uh, answer to whatever de deficiency the, the presidential candidate has? You know, you're running for president, and they say, you know, I like everything about that candidate except X. Try to get a vice president that fills the X slot, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, they'll go to the traditional things, but if they think one of these folks can pull Texas away from the Republican Party, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the foundation stone. Texas is the foundation stone for a Republican national win, and if they think somebody can do that, they'll grab it. Huh. Well, uh, that's all we have time for today. Uh, thanks to UT Southwestern, the Texas Association of Nurse nurse anesthetists, Waters and Krauss and, Close. <laughs> Waters and Krauss and the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raiser Association are sponsors this week. And extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Alex, and Aaliyah, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Amon. Thanks for listening.